Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another season of Home and Hose. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Freddie Claude, and today we've got an incredible guest to kickstart season two. We're joined by George King, who becomes the only person throughout history to free climb the Shard. All 310 meters of it. I mean, bearing in mind it was Europe's tallest building a short while ago. It's just an incredible, but you know, beyond incredible achievement. So we can't wait to hear about his experiences. I mean, what kind of spiced up his experiences? Not only did he climb it, but on his way down, the Shard decided to press charges and he ended up spending three months in jail. So we can't wait to hear about that. You know, at only 19, he's achieved so much and been through so much. So without further ado, please welcome to Home and Ho, season two, kickstarting with a bang, Mr. George King. When you were a child at school, were you always a free-spirited man or were you sort of tied down to academia or was there something which always made you feel, look, this isn't for me, I need to break away. And actually that's what has led you to kind of go on to do these incredible things. 100%. I've always um, been sort of unique. I've never been a conformist. And I was actually terrible at school from from um, the beginning to the end, bottom of the set, uh, bottom of class all, all the way through but I never saw school and that path as something which will define my future um, I always saw myself and my career to be in a completely different path and therefore I never stayed within the clutches of conformity um, school was became very difficult when I was around 13 14 15 as I was for sky um I was diagnosed with ADHD and I was prescribed a drug called Ritalin. Yeah. Now, if any, if anyone uh, listening knows what Ritalin is, mm. it's it's basically acts in the same way cocaine does on the brain. Yeah. And you putting uh, kids on these um, is it's amphetamine. It works by increasing the dopamine levels and the adrenaline levels uh, for kids. It's Vietnam for kids. It's yeah. ridiculous. And um, this gave me crippling anxiety in the day. And by the time I got to uh, going to sl- uh, the end of the day, my neuroadrenaline was depleted and my dopamine was depleted. So I fell into the depths of depression. And on top of this, uh, I've always had insomnia my whole life, still to this day. And that uh, infected my insomnia even more. So I had to take more of my sleep medication and then, um, and then more of the Ritalin medication to keep me up during the day. So it's a vicious cycle. Um, and now the point I'm getting across with this is that if you have to take medication, right, to remain competitive in school, then that is a clear sign that you are on the wrong path of course, and, the, yeah. and, and, and you need to take an alternative path. So really throughout school. Um, never took to it, never understood it, never really wanted it. Were, were you, obviously, you know, you, your physical ability is incredible, but were you successful in sort of, I, I say old-fashioned because they are old-fashioned in a sense, team sports. You know, what you do now is very much an individual pursuit. Were, mm. were you um, successful in team sports or not? I always preferred individual sports. Um, so before the climbing, I actually, what got me into everything was actually long-distance running. Um, and the reason long distance running um, uh, uh, got me into everything was because it taught me about willpower. So I remember I'd be going off uh, with my brother um, and I'd go on a three mile run and I'd get home and I think, what if I just didn't stop? Like how, how far could my body and mind actually go? And um, it got me thinking. So I remember the next weekend I'd run six miles 
Then the next week I ran half a, half a marathon just on my own. And then the next week I ran a full marathon just by myself at the age of um, 13. Wow. And, um, and then I, 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 when I was 15, I lied about my age um, to enter an ultra marathon running from London to Cambridge with 100 kilometers. Now that taught me about willpower and mental resilience. And then um, along with that, when I was around 14, 15, um, I also became competitive, well, sorry, 16, 17, I became extremely obsessed and competitive in uh, boxing. And um, I remember my first fight, I, I, was, I was so fearful um, and I lost all my ability under pressure and lost the fight. And, that, um, and then I remember seeing all the other fighters who were experienced and they just seemed so calm. They seemed to yeah. have everything under, under control. And that, um, I, as I progressed in the boxing, I learned that how to control fear. And that enabled me to uh, understand the mechanisms to control fear, which I still use to this day to do the big climbs. Um, so really, I mean, going way back, it's, it's always been individual, sure. individualistic uh, sports, which I've been passionate about. So was it the individual sporting pursuits in terms of finding boxing and finding ways to exceed this energy, which helped you to overcome the sort of anxiety and depression you were struggling with in your teenage years? Or what was the kind of golden golden moment which which allowed you to kind of switch off and go, actually, I can exceed this and use this energy in a productive way? Okay, so... Um, uh, before I, before um, first year, 14, 15, I, I, um, I was in a day school and then I went into a boarding school. Now, I used to be, um, before going into the boarding school, a extroverted, bubbly, positive individual. But as soon as I went into the boarding school, uh, not uh, I mean, I was well liked, but because of the environment, I couldn't pursue any of my passions. Um, so I was forced to do hobbies I didn't like. I was forced to do what work I didn't like. And I was forced to stay in this boarding school. Yeah. And that it was, it was actually the environment, which was the catalyst to the depression and anxiety. And then on top of it, the medication as well, just blew it out of proportion. Now, I, once I left the school, boarding school around 15, um, 15, 16, I was suddenly able to um, pursue passions again. Mm. So it was the power of the passions which actually enabled me to, um, you know, uh, become sane again and, and to become, uh, the, be back with myself, the extroverted, bubbly um, individual, which I used to be. Um, so, um, you know, it was, it was pursuing my passions sure. was really, really got so, me. George, can you remember if you can try and recall and recollect that first time you ever? Obviously, you were doing a lot of running and boxing, but can you remember the first time you saw a climbing uh, expedition or, or you know, that catalyst moment where you went, "I want to give that a go." When was oh, that? Yeah. So, actually, um, near my house, there, there's a wood and there's a scout camp, um, and in the scout camp, there's various climbing walls. Now I was just exploring. This is when I was 12 years old. I was just exploring around the wood and I've all, I'd be testing myself already. You know, I've had a willing to, I mean, I climbed trees, jumped off this and done all of that. So I already, I already had a interest to fear. I was always inquisitive about fear sure. and I saw this climbing wall. I'm like, right, I'm going to climb it. I climbed halfway up and I, I couldn't go anymore and I couldn't go down. And suddenly, for the first time in my life, I experienced a fight or flight response in full power. But at this point, I couldn't control it. 
I started to shake. My vision started went to go a bit blurry. I started, my palms started to go sweaty and I was clinging on with dear life, shaking. And then suddenly something switched. Took a deep breath, tried to control it. And as soon as I controlled it, I harnessed it. And that panic turned to power very quickly. And suddenly I realized how much strength the human body and mind really has. Now, I got down from that climbing wall and I went away. It felt like 15 minutes, probably was only three minutes, but that's not the point. The point is I felt the power of the fight or flight response. Sure. And if, if you can control it, how 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 incredible, um, uh, how how much potential you, you possibly could could have. And obviously that that single moment has um, has actually just drawn me to constantly incrementally sure. rise the bar, bar higher and higher. Now I, I, I'm playing devil's advocate here, but have you ever you know had the anger of someone going like, how dare I as a, a fellow climber, it, yeah, yeah, as it were, no. suffer so much and not be able to overcome my fears, control my breathing, get over these tasks, and then a young guy who's you know 19 has been able to climb you know the tallest building in Europe whatever do people get angry at you for being able to not have to train in the same way you know people I'm guessing have to spend years training themselves to be able to breathe properly and get all that you know responses right to be able to overcome these incredible challenges and you've just been able to climb something and go like actually wow that's a um, you know human reaction and I've got that and now it's under control I can move forward yeah, well, I mean, interesting enough. The, the I mean, when we look at the shark climbs uh, specifically, um, that is not a product of forty-five minutes. Yes, it took me forty-five minutes to do the climb, but that's I mean, as we spoke before, that draws back to uh, when I was ten years old, when I first started, or even even earlier, when I was eight years old, when I first started running long distance, where I started to learn about the mind. So it was a product of of you know probably you know 12 years of actual mental training not necessarily physical but mental training so um yeah i've been i mean i've been at it from a young age so that's really um if, if someone were to think that you know i it doesn't affect me because really i'm honest with myself and i know that 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 it's it, this has been a product of a long time of course i, I can imagine it is a sort of a, a strong line of jealousy which which burns deep in some of the people who are just like, how can he go at such a young age and do these incredible <laughs> things? Um, so what was the first big climb then? Um, the first big, I would say a crane um, in Oxford, right? So that, and I say big because it was suddenly a step up into a world which I now, I now uh, am extremely immersed in. It was a first step into it. And I remember cl seeing this sort of, crane which was about 50 meters high in oxford and um i remember climbing three quarters of the way up and then i'm getting paranoid about the security uh, security at the bottom so i actually just aborted it three quarters of the way up but the whole process of wrecking the site learning about the site looking at the entrances and climbing up and and seeing the city below almost like almost like a circuit board and this sort of tinning sort of hum, which the which which comes with it, uh, this feeling of pure peace, like I'm separated from society, was truly, truly magical, quite profound. And I mean, that was really um, that's really special and uh, sticks with me to this day. 
and um, and that that is become that comes with the whole philosophy with with the whole urban climate which I do. Well, that's what I was going to say because actually, when you start to take on challenges like a crane and anything bigger, the issue doesn't then just be will I survive this? You know, what are the risks in terms of climbing? You're also breaking rules aren't you? you you've mm. got other things to worry about which are out of your control in the sense that you're now on public property there are going to be people walking around seeing you do it it's no longer just sort of a controlled area and so actually you can't just think about yourself and the climbing and your breathing you've got other things on your mind and those must be quite hard to shut out um well let me think let me raise that point in conjunction with a shard because it become I mean, when when you infiltrate a site, it becomes second nature to have the awareness of the security. It's, it's the plan. You become the plan. So therefore, you're just running the motions of the plan. So you you don't actually think about the security or the or the cameras or the sensors because you already know where to duck here and where to crawl here or to where to where to run here. So you become the plan. Uh, but certainly before the climb your that that sort of occupies the thought space planning it but really there's something really special about that i really enjoy the reconnaissance of of doing these sort of sort of missions so for your first climb there the big one the crane was there as much planning obviously it didn't require as much planning as the shard but that being your everest at that point in time you mm. know it would have been your biggest achievement to date and it was was there as much planning which went into that as there was in your later incredible achievements or not so uh uh, not so much planning, uh, but it still allowed me to sort of go around the site, sort of look into it, 360 view, trying to find my entry, trying to understand where the cameras are. So, but that, I mean, like you said, that was my Everest at the time. For me, that was really intense. It was yeah. like, you know, this, if I were to do it now, that would just be second nature. I could do it with my eyes closed. But for, for that time, uh, point in time, that was um, that was like a really um, intense moment for me. And do you, uh, do you tell you know your process of climbing? Obviously, we're going to massively get into the shard properly. But for for the for the cranes um, and, and and the other um, tasks building up to the shard, do you tell your family, your friends? I mean, what is the process of you going around getting ready for a climb? Okay, so with regards to my family, um, I. I mean, I lived a double life um, for quite some time when I was doing all these stunts and climbs and around the uh, the UK. I mean, I would hide things constantly. I would block my family from social media, um, hide things under my bed. I just I couldn't let them find out. Otherwise, if they do, they'll try to stop me. And then in 2018, I climbed the UK's tallest climbing wall and the world's tallest climbing wall without ropes, and it made the news. So I thought, right, if it's time to tell my family, I'm going to tell them now. Spoke to my mum about it, said a whole speech, expressed why I do it, my passion. And really, it didn't come to a surprise to her. She supports me and she's the best mum in the world. But of course, any mum is going to think the same. You don't want your son in danger. Of course. Um, So um, obviously my family tried to stop me there was a few few uh you know tears and um i i've sort of been sort of almost disowned uh before uh but um uh they they sort of now that i'm at this point they they understand how much meaning it gives to my life how passionate i am and therefore they they support it in a healthy way 
quickly if I can jump in. So you're telling me that you climbed the world's tallest climbing wall, you know, without any assistance or ropes. And obviously your family are incredibly loyal and loving. And yet they still didn't know that you were capable of doing such a thing. Well, it you actually, kept you kept that under wraps so well. Oh, I was I, I'm a very obsessive person in, in anything which means something to me. And that tied in with my double life. I mean, I was completely obsessed with every single thing. I call it dry cleaning. Um, dry cleaning in the sense that every time I do something, I have a process of hiding it, right? Yeah. So uh, back in the day when I would go out to London and I climb a few things, my dry cleaning, you know, I'd go into the house. I have a backstory for everything. I, I, have, I have answers to every single question. I have a spare change of clothes near to my house to get changed into so that the grease from the cranes or whatever won't show on the clothes. And then I hide any of my cameras or whatever with SD cards under my bed. And, you know, I had a whole dry cleaning process. Very obsessive. And through, through doing all these climbs over the years, building up to the shard, is there the same subset community as there is in sort of skating and stuff like that? Mm. Is there quite a loyal following and quite a loyal uh, community which you've got to know? Uh, yes, definitely. There's there's a community called the Urban Exploring Community. Um, it's not as big as like the skateboarding community, sure. obviously, but it's um, it's very underground. The same way something like graffiti would be underground, but at the same time. As all, although you could categorize me as an urban explorer, I don't actually associate myself with members in the community. I've almost I'm I'm a I'm a sort of lone wolf in it. And my friends are my friends. They're not actually associated with it. And the reason is because I um, don't like getting egos involved when things are very dangerous. So I feel I'm a very competitive person. Right. And if I'm climbing with a lot of people, although I may consciously not want to part of me may may want to be competitive with them and that's not something you want to do you want to go at your own pace so i've always just done these things by myself alone yes i've climbed with people i have climbed with people before but i prefer to do it by myself and if i'm part of that community and i see you climb the world's tallest um wall without any assistance which is an incredible achievement in, in itself but then to make the jump to go climb essentially europe's tallest building 310 meters the shard yeah without any assistance if I'm part of that community, do I look at you and go, not only do I think you're crazy, but how dare he have the balls to even think he can go do that? I think, <laughs> I think, yeah, I think there probably was half, half um, saying that and then half who respect it. I, I, I definitely saw people who are well known in the community um, respond in a clearly jealous uh, way. Whereas others um, who were well-known in the community uh, got me on a podcast and wanted to chat about it and uh, wanted to hear about the, hear about the adventure. So it was very mixed, very sure. mixed across the whole community, yeah. And obviously, like, in different sporting pursuits, you have sort of what they call the, the, the right build for each sport. So a rugby build, for example, you may have a big neck and a big torso, but then, you know, you don't want to be too heavy in your legs or whatever. And then football, you want to be skinny, but, like, quite mm. strong in your legs. So for climbing, have you been able to build up, you know, you, you, your physique through just days and hours and hours of climbing or is there quite a um specific physical routine you put yourself through every day yeah well i mean like i said before you know i've always been diverse in what i do boxing running um uh you know climbing um, so my training let's say i'm preparing to do the shard for example the training is always going to be climbing that's what it is but in the past i mean it's ranged from boxing to strength and conditioning to 
uh, calisthenics, body weight training to uh, climbing to this. So I'm quite diverse, diverse in my training. But generally speaking, I want to aim to be have a good strength to weight ratio and to have slow twitch muscles and train sorry train slow twitch muscles instead of fast twitch muscles so the slow twitch muscles are involved in endurance so i want to be able to endure not be speed speedy and powerful i want to have good endurance um and along with that a good a good um uh, i mean you want to be on the on the skinnier side like uh, of of the spectrum um so being light but strong Okay. Um, is is uh, definitely. So you, you're saying I don't have the ideal physique. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that, mate. <laughs> um, so obviously you go through the, from the world's tallest uh, wall, and then why the shard? Why did you immediately go right? You know what? Forget doing anything in between. I'm going to make the jump to go and climb Europe's tallest building, 310 meters tall, without any assistance. What you, you know? Why did you make the jump so, so rapidly? Well, actually, the, dr- the dream, the seed was first planted when I was 13 years old and I was on a school art trip and we were in a coach and I saw the shard for the first time. Now, at that age, I was a, very much a dreamer. So I, I, I constantly dreamed of challenges and projects. And I remember seeing the shard and for some weird reason in that moment, I knew that my destiny would involve the shard at some point. I don't know why, but it just felt like that that was the case. Um, and I don't know how that would have manifested. Uh, but I felt that I, I was immediately drawn to it and, you know, uh, time went by, I did many challenges, I did many clients, but there was still in the back of the mind, this shard, this massive project. And it was, it only, t- it was a, a year before, um, I did the climb where I took my first first recce and first preparation to to see the building for the first time and try and understand it. The reason why I chose to do it that was your question. I don't really know. I mean, maybe it's because it's the it's the tallest building in the UK. Maybe it's because um, uh, it, it's it, it would draw draw light to a legacy. Or I I don't really know. I can't tell you. I was just drawn to it. Um, I don't I, I don't know to this day even having done it. And um, yeah, and I I, um, I went for my, my first recce and I remember going around and I was thinking, this is completely impossible. There's cameras there. How am I going to get to there? All this sort of stuff. And then, um, and then um, I remember going home thinking that this is impossible, but there was still this inkling that maybe it was. And I la- whipped out my laptop and went on Google Earth and looked at this angle a bit differently. And then I realized that maybe, just maybe, this could be possible. And that led on to 150 so, other visits. So, so, so tell me about these reckies, because you know I, I've worked in the shadows of the of the shards. I'm guessing many listeners have as well. And you don't have that much access at all, really. You walk out of London Bridge Station, you can walk around and see the old camera here and there. But I mean, not enough to give you confidence to go and free climb this building. <laughs> um, so, so, so tell me about access, like, and uh, and your uh, sort of thinking about how you can actually properly plan this. Because I'm guessing, you know, as it's illegal, as we find out later in this interview i'm sure um you don't get given the manual of like oh here's the best place to climb the shard and all these things yeah absolutely and this is why this whole uh project was very much more than just a climb it was a pioneering event in trying to understand everything and tactics to um infiltrate a highly secure site and one of my tactics was disguises now i'm dealing 
with one of the best security teams in the world. Um, and one of the best security teams in the world are trained to infer pattern recognition. So if they see the same guy going to the shards day in and day out, looking at it in a certain way, they will recognize that and they will go to you and they will question you and they will find out that I have done past clients before and they will slap a restraining order on me. So my plan was to go in disguises. Uh, one day I would be in a suit with a briefcase and I'll be on the phone. Now, when you're when you're sort of looking at something and you're just standing there, that kind of draws attention to you. But if you've got a phone in your hand, you're doing something and I'm just mumbling, but I'm looking. Another disguise I'd do in a sports kit holding a protein shake and I would stretch on a pillar and I would see that the pillar, for example, goes from my wrist to my elbow. I stretch and then I'll go to Waterloo East, get out of there, had a whole exit plan and I'll go back to my um, small rented apartment in Leighton, East London and I'd measure with a tape measure from my wrist to my elbow to find uh, uh, the exact distance and that would be the measurement for the recce. So it was just incremental progression throughout the course of a year. So, um, and it, yeah. So it was a year's preparation. Yeah. And can you tell me, you know, obviously it starts to take speed in the coming months, you know, the one or two months before you actually do the um, the climb. So if you can just take me through those two months building up, I, I want to know about nutrition. I want to know how much exercise you're doing. Are you waning off towards the, the big climb? How many mm. people you've got involved? What you're doing with your family? Yeah. Okay. So, um, so one interesting thing I'd do is, uh, I mean, physical training, obviously, as much as possible, being clever about it, climbing mainly. Uh, but mental training was as important as the physical training. Now, how do you mentally prepare for something like this? Uh, well, I had to, like you said, there's no guide, there's no manual to mentally prepare to climb the shard. So I had to create my own training strategies. And one of my training strategies was ice immersions. Now, when you go into ice cold water, ice baths, you automatically go into a state of shock, sensory overload, right? And that sensory overload mimics the exact same feeling I will experience when I climb the shard. So I would condition myself in ice baths to be able to uh, uh, remain calm in that fight or flight response and re recite every step of the way of the cl climbing the shard in a controlled manner so that when I go, um, when I go and do climb, climb the shard, that state of sensory overload is familiar and so therefore more controllable. Um, so ice baths was one of my ways to mentally prepare. Likewise, um, the subconscious is most in tune first thing in the morning and last thing at night. So I would do visualize the climb going to perfection from the moment I left the hotel to the moment I reached the top five times in the morning five times at night and by doing so on a neurochemical level your brain creates new neurons so when i actually did the climb of the shard every single point felt familiar because my brain recognized it as if i'd been there before um so that was the mental side of things physical things i've i said before you know i did did, did climbing training a lot of it mainly endurance um and then i had four accomplices who helped me along the way. Uh, one gave me a leg up onto the ledge. Uh, one was just evaluating it, you know, just building up the plan. And, you know, I, we would, um, some would accompany me with reckeys. 
uh, and we'd we'd bounce ideas off each other. We'd um, you know in in my flat uh, uh, rented flat in Leighton uh, with my best friend. We'd um, we'd get the group together. And we would um, there'll be a, a wall, and uh, you may see it. I've got a, got a, a photo on Instagram, and it, it's it's almost like um like a spider diagram. I will put the shard in the middle, and we'll say entry A, entry B, entry C, entry D, entry E, all the way up to entry F, and we just plan it, post it note, put it there. What question mark there? What about this? What about that? And we just all come together and just really just try and solve this puzzle mm. i call it a puzzle because it really was a puzzle of, course. of of what what it takes to find the achilles heel of the shard and the achilles heel of the shard was entry c um which was the climb and um, obviously you did the climb at 5 a.m i'm right i'm right in saying or you know 4 or 5 a.m yes um so in the in the weeks building well i should say the week building up to the climb were you sleeping in the daytime and getting up at sort of two and two in the morning i mean how did you readjust your your time frame and your and your body yeah so i mean like you said um, i would have to of course um try and uh, get my circadian rhythm my sleep sleep and weight cycle in tune with the climb now like i said before suffer from insomnia easier said than done um i actually remember the the night before i only had one hour sleep and the night before that i only had four hours sleep so i was running on sleep deprivation no it's nothing nothing new to me but um yeah i i i definitely tried to get my circadian rhythm but that's that's a weakness which i'm 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 still trying to trying to fight um to this day and i, I will overcome it so 24 hours before the climb are you still in the flat or did you say you're at a hotel yeah so um i actually went from uh, london to uh sorry oxford to london and i met three of my friends who'd been there from the beginning in a hotel room and i remember that day before 12 hours or so before the climb that evening walking around london bridge the calm before the storm you know um i in 12 hours time the security of the Shard is going to wake up to the biggest breach they've ever experienced um, in the time at the Shard. Um, the media are going to wake up to breaking news. Um, I'm going to find out if my plan works. I'm going to find out if I live or die. There was this really, uh, you could cut the tension with a knife. And the amazing thing was that it was, it was a, secret to, uh, a secret to only four people but the whole world were oblivious to it. And I remember this sort of, oh, it, was, it was a really powerful moment, really powerful moment. So, so there were four of you in a hotel room. Now, did, did that allow you to get any sleep or not? Uh, well, it, you know, everyone was obviously respectful as to how important this is. You know, they shared the success and vision of, vision of the success with me. So, um, yeah, like, uh, I mean, the sleep, I mean, I, I, I mean, I had, I had, um, earplugs i did everything i can to try and get some sleep but you know the, the adrenaline is there you know it's it's keeping you up and, and i'm very and what was your last meal i say your last meal i mean it obviously didn't turn out <laughs> to be your last meal but george you know you, you taking on one of the tallest buildings in europe the tallest building in the uk anything could have gone wrong luckily it didn't you turn out to be an absolute legend but if it had done did you obviously your thoughts were on just getting the right things in your body and what is the right thing to eat to take on such a mammoth challenge well, you want to take in something which is low GI, so slow release energy, 
and that manifested in bananas and oats. Um, that would supply, supply my muscles with enough glycogen to sustain um, the, the, the duration of the climb. Then when we're going a bit closer, we want something which is high GI, so fast sugars, and that's a more noticeable sense of energy, i.e. cereal bars, um, you know, those sort of things, um, along with a couple of cups of coffee, and you're right as right. <laughs> now, now, what is your mindset? Because you look at your four mates who've helped you plan and meticulously get, get yourself ready for this incredible challenge. Obviously, the mind of a competitor and someone about to undertake something just which is beyond uh, the realms of capability, really, for 99.9% of the world, even more than that, um, is to go, right, I need to concentrate. I've, I've got to have everything visualized and ready to go. But is there something in the back of your mind where you go, I need to hug and sort of just show the love and appreciation to these guys before I go? Or is it, this is business, I'll see you in half an hour? This is business. I'll see you in half an hour. I remember saying, um, I remember, I remember sort of waking up at um, three forty-five and beginning my stretches, and it was, it was just, it was just pure focus. This is the mission. This is what's happening, and it was such a, such a powerful feeling. Now I, I remember going up. Obviously, the climb starts at five o'clock, and at four fifty-five, I'm, I'm walking down down the down, out, out of my hotel room and i'm walking down down the aisle and i feel uh, feel like um you know like i own the hotel i feel so confident i feel mm. so ready and I go, I go into the elevator and i look in the mirror and i see someone who isn't me i look into my eyes and there's just rage and passion and just it, it just, it's just pure focus and i i, I exit the hotel and then a little bit, I look up to the shah and I see this. I'm always personified the building. I saw this separate entity, you know, in my dream. And I walk through the London Bridge Station. And one of the tactics I have with controlling fear is a bit of humor. I always keep things loose. I always think keep things light. And not enough humor that you're taking the piss. But I just sort of, I just sort of had a little giggle to myself. I sang a little song keep things light smiled and that's enough to trick the brain into mediating the fear sure so i'm just walking through i'm just keeping calm keeping relaxed and then um i'm going up the staircase to platform nine and then boom it's game on i got my friend behind me we shout our code word which is mordor that means that there's no train coming and we jump over he gives me a leg up and then we're we're off how long, um, obviously you have to plan, you don't want to be doing it when it's pouring with rain and freezing cold. So how long in the planning process did you know that that day you did it was going to be the day? Um, I didn't. Um, I actually planned to do it in May um, and uh, weather didn't permit and I ended up doing it 8th of July. Now I knew it was going to be a Monday at 5.07am. I knew that and the reason I knew that was because I spent all night in London Bridge Station, um, London Bridge Station platform um, on four occasions, uh, pretending to be drunk on a bench, survey, uh, implementing surveillance, taking note of absolutely everything. For example, at 2.05 2 a.m., a train goes past, 2.10, announcement goes off, 3 o'clock in the morning, a security goes from hut A to B, 4.30 a.m., a cleaner goes pl past platform seven and with the lists of data which i had acquired i would infer a correlation as to what the best time is to do the climb where there's no activity in london bridge station and that that um 
at that that time was 5.07 a.m. or around there on a Monday morning. That was the perfect time. Uh, so that's when I knew I was going to do the climb. With regards to weather, like I said, May got May, uh, May, late May, early June got cancelled because of weather. But coming into it, I was just persistently, persistently checking the weather. So let's talk about the actual climb then. You get the leg up from your mate, you say goodbye, you put your first grip around the shard and you're ready mm. to go. And then can you just take me through the highs and lows of that next 45 minutes? Yes, of course. Okay, so um, so on the first initial five meters, now the plan with the whole uh, with with entry C was speed because I could have been intercepted by f- uh, four different points on the roof um, where I could could be could be caught, and the plan was to get to the point where I could start the climb as quickly as possible. So I, I used a suction cup, just one suction cup to get to a point where I could start the climb. And, uh, from there on, um, I, I, I begin the climb and I enter a state of, of what I call the flow. Um, when the fight or flight is raging and I'm now there, uh, just my, me, myself, a bag of chalk, some climbing shoes and, and I'm going. And time ceases to exist. My brain is not recalling information. It's just focusing on the next best move and the next best move. And the climb, the beginning of the of the climb was technical. Um, it was difficult, but the majority of the climb was um, technically quite easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but involved endurance, of course. So I'm focusing on my breathing. I'm keeping calm, and I'm going along. And I remember. Um, I saw a a um, uh, go because I mean the Shard is dubbed a vertical city, right? It's it's it, it, you have the healthcare at the bottom, you have certain businesses, you have a restaurant, you have a hotel, you have a bar, you have a gym, you mm-hmm. have a, so I'm go- and then you have apartments. So I'm going across this climb, and I'm seeing the city on different levels. It's really quite amazing. And I remember going past a hotel room and seeing someone having a morning coffee and giving him a, a little nod and a wink <laughs> and then carrying on. And then I saw a cleaner and he whips out his phones and starts smiling and I give him a nod and a wink and carry on. And then I reach. And now for me, getting past, if I got past the viewing deck, that was a success to me. Now, the reason is I couldn't plan for anything above the viewing deck because you can't get to that point to understand the building. Okay. And, um, during the viewing deck onwards, the the technicality of the climb goes from easy to medium to hard because now you're smearing on this quite narrow panel. So there's no grip where your feet are and you're just simply using the traction of your feet um, and balance to and uh, momentum to, to continue the climb. Now, the first bit of the smearing was okay. I was managing fine. But as I passed the, the, passed the viewing deck, there are generators and there are like window cleaning machines which churn out a bit of dust and grease. So some are slipping on the, on the on the panels now, and I'm using momentum to re- maintain traction. And I'm really feeling my slip feet go, going away from me, and I'm not prepared for any of this. I carry on going for for you know 10 15 meters till I reach 10 to 20 meters below the tip of the shard, and I go inside the building. Uh, so I, I I reach 20 meters below the tip, and for me. That was a raging success for me. 
uh, I value and take pride out of preparation. I couldn't prepare for this slippery section of the shard. And for me to be in uh, past the viewing deck and to be in the building uh, safe and alive was a raising success uh, to me. It's amazing. Uh, did, did you know that you were going to be able to get into the building from that point where you climbed? Yes, yes, because above, uh, above the viewing deck, from the viewing deck onwards, the shard is open. Uh, so you can go into it. It's like an open sort of area. So I knew I would be able to get in from there. And um, yeah, I, I, and the twist in the story was I was confronted by three police officers who I thought would be confronting me with handcuffs, rugby tackles, insults, swear words and aggression. But it was merely the opposite. I put my hands out to get arrested. They put their hands out to shake my hand. Yeah. They smiled. They they respected it. Some had concerns. I had my justifications, and we just just sort of, yeah, you know, it was quite amazing, really. It was really a twist in the story. So, uh, so what's the first thing you do when you after you've shaken the hands of the policeman and and sort of been taken down to the bottom, the ground floor with the shard? Yeah, so um, they take a few details. I'm only there for around thirty minutes, and. Um, I'm taken down and I was actually topless at the time and they just let me go. And I was like, I was so confused. I thought I'd be in the, in the cells for at least 24 to 48 hours. And I'm, I go out of the, uh, the shard and it's rush hour on a Monday morning and it's already breaking news, but no one knows who it is because I didn't wear a head camera. I didn't announce it. I sure. didn't, it didn't do any publications for it. And I'm just walking around london amongst the chaos yeah. amongst the chaos and it's just i'm just this sort of no man you know i'm just this unknown man and then i i go from oxford to london i get a train i manage to get uh meet my brother um on london bridge station sorry london bridge uh bridge the bridge of london bridge area and um he, he gives me 20 pounds and i get a train back to oxford and then seven hours later I'll edit a really quick, just, I mean, I didn't wear a hair camera, like I said, I didn't feel it was necessary. I liked the purity of me and the challenge. It wasn't about sure. viral, viral uh, social media. Uh, but I did have someone film from the bottom and I just quickly stitch a little 15 second thing and just put it on my Instagram. As soon as that was done, um, my phone just did not stop buzzing. Uh, podcast, radio, everything. And, and suddenly... A project which was so much a secret, yeah. all of a sudden became global news. And that transition was really, really hard to uh, grab a hold of. And had you told your family on the phone or did you wait till you saw them in person? I think my mum heard it on um, the radio and instantly assumed it was me. Um, and then I called her and I said, um, I just climbed the shard. And she said, I'm so happy you're safe. But at the same time, that is a incredible achievement, yeah. and and yeah, it is one of the most incredible achievements I think today in history. But if I could just quickly touch on the fact that you were saying, you know, suddenly your world goes crazy because the media are in touch, everyone's knows your name, you know, you're you're all over the news, and you have a couple of weeks of that. And so then, when does it come to pass that the shards start to press charges? As you said, you got away with a caution from the police. Mm. They shook your hands, off you went. You thought that was the end of it. So when do the next chapter start? Um, yeah, so I mean, really, um, there was always going to be two sides to the repercussions. There's going to be the criminal sides, which is involved with the 
police and it's going to be the civil sides. Um, I, um, I knew the prospect of prison and uh, was on the table at the moment I committed to the, the, the building. However, when I got that caution, I thought that was it. You know, I, I knew I'd go to court, but I would think it would be ex quite extreme for them to send someone down three months after doing the climb. It just didn't seem right in my head, and mm -hmm. I didn't expect it at all. Even though before I thought it was a, it, uh, before doing the climb, I thought it was possible that I could go to prison. Uh, but afterwards, I, I I just thought that this just won't, won't happen. Mm -hmm. um, so we're talking three months uh, three months on. Uh, I, I, uh, there's, there's a there's a court hearing date and of course in that three months I've been preparing a few things with my solicitor as you do mm -hmm. and uh, for 21st of October I'm in London I go to the Royal Courts of Justice civil court and as soon as I walk into the area it's suddenly the seriousness of it all comes down the tradition the the judges and we is suddenly it's suddenly a different ballpark mm -hmm. and um i i wait outside the the courtroom with my solicitors and i go in and i mean within 30 minutes i knew that i was going to go to prison um and the reason being is that the judge was feeding off the information of the shards lawyers and was rejecting my barrister's uh, claims and dismissing uh, my my solicitor's claims. So it was but just. Can you just tell the listeners what the uh, charges were? Yes. Okay. So um, there is an there is something now. This is quite interesting, actually. Um, there is something um, on the there's an injunction placed to prevent someone called Ian Bone and others from protesting outside the shard and has nothing to do with uh, climbing the shard but they managed to weave me into this injunction and state that i um i have broke breached this injunction but it says nothing about climbing the building it only says about trespassing um to the area um of the shard but they weaved me in and i chose in the, in the uh to just you know uh you know go you know go with it and um so essentially the charge was breaching a injunction um and i didn't have a personal injunction as well so i it wasn't like i breached my own injunction sure. i breached someone else's injunction for stopping in protest about floor space in the shard it was it was really like really out there it was like it was like I, I, I quite quite shocked this day that they actually managed to merge me into this this charge, um, and which gave me more reason to think that I wouldn't go to prison. Mm. And um, yes, this this is on the table, and um, the 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 hearing goes on from ten to twelve p.m. when the judge says, "Right, I'm gonna go away for two hours, and we're gonna come back at two p.m. and I'll have the verdict for you guys." I leave the courtroom, and I know I'm going to prison. That's just, it was just like, I knew this was happening. And, uh, and were there any other options on the table or not? Well, I, I, I mean, yeah, definitely, you know, I could have got a fine. I could have got a suspended sentence. I could have got uh, tagged. I got a, could have got community service. Do you think the Shard wanted someone, uh, and in this case yourself, to go to jail to prove a point to stay away? Oh, absolutely. And I'll get onto that in a second, 100%. Um, and, 
yeah, so I I, um, I go for lunch uh, quickly. Just and I knew I know I'm going to prison. My solicitors are sort of saying it's fifty fifty, but I know deep down I go, um, I go back at two p.m. and the judge is taking ages to get to the verdict. He's going on, he's going on, and uh, eventually I see to the corner of my eye two court officers come in with handcuffs on their side, and um, and then. And then the judge is still going on for another 20 minutes. And then he suddenly says it. I now commit George King to um, six months detention in a young offenders institute. I stand up, give a nod and a wink to my dad and my brothers and my manager, shake, them my hand, uh, shake the hands of my solicitor. As I'm getting cuffed, I look round to the shard lawyers and the solicitors and I see nothing but smiles from ear to ear. Um, and that was a clear indication that the, their purpose of this court case, which was worth over 100k in legal costs, was to put me in prison. And um, I remember seeing that, and I was like, right, here we go. Anyway, I'm getting taken off to the court cells. And am I feeling upset? Am I sad? Am I nervous? No, I'm fucking ready. I'm ready to go. Let's do this. Let's get going. I'm ready for this this challenge. Step into the unknown. And, um, and then I proceed um, to adult prison instead so, of the young offenders. So you're issue. 19 at this point, right, still? Uh, actually, 20. I recently 20. recently turned 20 in Okay, so, so you just turned 20. And you thought you were going to a young institute. And just tell me about, you know, if you, if you don't mind, when you're led out the courtroom, you know, you leave your family, friends and lawyers behind. And then are you immediately led out the building or do you go into cells in the court or what? Yeah, so it's called going going down or going under. And um, I mean, interestingly enough, when I was walking through the, the hallway of the, the, of the Royal Courts of Justice with my handcuffs on and being escorted with two officers, suddenly there's this red label on you and there is this stigma attached to you. I'm walking across and there was this, this child um, in front of me and the dad runs, grabs the child, pulls the child away. Suddenly this guy is, you know, a dangerous person. He's, you know, it, it was quite wow. a surreal moment. Anyway, so I get taken underground um, and they take a few details off you and you go into court cells there and you're in a cell for a bit and you're just waiting to um, be transferred to um, well what I thought was Young Offenders Institute but uh, due to being overcrowding I went to adult prison which HMP Pentable uh, notably one of the one of the hardest and toughest um, as a result of a recent investigation done two weeks ago um so uh yeah and then i was i was on my so, way so, so how long how long does it take for you to, uh, you know from the moment you're convicted to get to prison what's that how long's that window okay so i was in the court cells for about two hours and then um and then i'm taken out and i'm put into this this truck right and it's quite it's quite a, a surreal experience being in the truck because you're handcuffed you haven't got a seat belt and you're in a cell within the truck and you look out into the the window and it's all blurred and magnified and it's like the glimpse of reality is distorted and you're looking at the wall in front of you it's got graffiti zt gang chest shock gangs uh, stabbing you know just all yeah. these uh, and i'm just i'm just looking at all this graffiti and i'm just thinking in a moment's time i'm going to step into a world in front of me which i'm seeing of criminal life criminal activity drugs violence paranoia and it's it is it's a really 
I mean, it's, it's probably one of the biggest steps into the unknown I've ever taken. And, um, and for me, that was quite thrilling. So, 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 so what happens when you step out the truck at HM, HMP Bentonville? Um, I go into reception and you're immediately stripped of your humanity. Uh, you're stripped naked and you do, you, you twirled around like a ballerina and you squat and cough and you're given a number. A9251EK was my number. And uh, yeah, that's who you are. You're just another uh, person in the system and you're given a grey tracksuit and you're given a few essentials, new roll, soap um, and plates, plastic plate um, and cutlery. And you're taken to, you have a quick shower and then you go into a holding cell before all these new people go off to um, go off to their wings and cells. Um, and in that holding cell, I looked up and I saw that there was this TV and suddenly on the news, it pops up. Shah Climber is committed to six month sentence at a young offenders institute. Oh, really? So I say to the inmates, that's me. Oh. And then people actually fed off that. And they actually, they actually, um, they actually respected it in a, in a funny way. And that gave me morale. That gave yeah. me a morale boost. That was, that, that was, that was quite nice. Um, and yeah, and then and then uh, shortly after, I'm taken off to my cell. So who else is in your cell? Uh, you have one cellmate. Uh, my first cellmate. I have quite a few cellmates actually. Um, they come and go. Uh, my first cellmate was in for a stabbing, as is a lot of um, individuals in prison. And um, yeah, it's, it's got, having a new cellmate is a is is a really interesting experience. A social, social. It's like a social sort of experiment, right? Yeah. Because. You're like, um, it's just, you, you, you don't know this person. You don't know who he is. You don't know his crime. You don't know how dangerous he is. And now you are going to have to live for 22 hours to 23 hours, shit, sleep, and breathe their s- smells and live amongst this guy uh, 22 hours a day, and you don't even know him. And you just put in there, and you slam shut. Get on with it. And it could go up either way. I had one cellmate who was fucking awesome. He was great. He, um, I mean, me and him clicked. It took a few days before we sort of were working each other out. And then we clicked. He had the same humor. He had the same uh, uh, sort of personality. What was he in for? Uh, a attempted murder charge. And um, he, he, uh, he was really... Um, he was really just just a crake. <laughs> like I, I, mean, I wouldn't say he's. A, I mean, he was just like we just got on. Uh, we we uh, we shared a lot of, a lot of laughs, and it made my sentence go very quickly. And then he let he was shipped out to another prison, and then my next cellmate was something else. Um, he, he comes in, doesn't speak a word of English, and he is a paranoid schizophrenic, um, which didn't I didn't actually initially clock onto it. But when we were in the exercise yard the next day, he had his top off, shouting, screaming, running around in circles, and he didn't speak much English. And it's all very funny for all the inmates when you see this guy running around who's crazy. But when you're living with him, it's a different story. And um, I remember being in the cell with him that night, and um, he was he was, oh, was just going nuts. And I remember the, the governor came to the door, and he threatened to kill the governor. Um, oh, and yeah. you know, it was and uh, that night he's sort of walking around is, is I'll tell you what his dinner consisted of his dinner consisted of, um, cocoa pops, 
10 sachets of white nut, two sachets of coffee, salt and vinegar crisps, slices of bread, water, sugar, milk. That was his dinner all started. You know, it was, it was, uh, this guy did not deserve to be in prison. He deserved to be in a psychiatric hospital. And eventually that's where he ended up. He was shipped out in two days um, out of my cell to a psychiatric so, 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 so tell me about quickly the configuration of the cells. We hear a lot in the media about, oh, you know, our prisoners being given sort of cells which are luxury with TVs and PlayStations mm. and everything they want. So just give, give, give me the reality. Um, well, the reality is very different. Now, um, yes, you do have private prisons. Um, for example, HMP Thameside, you have a uh, shower in the cell, you have a phone in the cell, and uh, your TV in the cell, and it's and it's you have quite good food. And now those private prisons, they they are BCAT prisons. Anyone can go there, um, any criminal can go there. But because they're privately owned, they're actually a bit better. Now HMP Pentaville is a is completely opposite end of the spectrum as is feltham um uh hmp pentacle is one of the oldest prison is the oldest prison in the country i think um well one of the oldest and the conditions as pointed out in a recent investigation two weeks ago are well below standard um i mean the floor is broken up and cracked up um the the beds uh are, they don't they're not straight they go there were a massive dip in them. Um, the loo um, is just rusty, and the hygiene is just terrible. Um, it's 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 really cramped, really narrow, really small. Uh, no chairs, no desk, no nothing. Um, the beds are, are, are rusty in a way. It's really, really, um, really poor conditions. But I, I never let it get to me. I just got on with it. So, so, so what do you do for entertainment in there then? Well, my escapism was writing. Um, so I've been writing. I spent a lot of time in jail writing a book, which I, I, I hope to publish at some point, and um, also writing plans for the future and reflections. And along with that, as much reading as I possibly can, even though it was hard to get books, and exercising. So that was my escapism. And I actually found myself getting being really busy in, in my cell. So I had a lot to, to get through. But unfortunately, for a lot of people, they don't have these escapisms, yeah. right? And um, for those who have mental health, the escapism is normally to do drugs as such as spice. Now, that's a spiral, spiral out of control. Uh, as, and it, it's a one-way ticket to suicide, as I did see um, someone commit suicide uh, in, in the prison. So, um, yeah, it, it, it can be extremely mentally draining those so, cells so, 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 so tell me about the drugs in in prison what is the uh, kind of the situation there people are smuggling them in the whole time is there an underground market are you allowed to smoke in your cell yeah i mean drugs are, are freely available if you know the right people you can get a- anything in prison any drug kfc prostitutes anything um it is ridiculous i mean not prostitutes and bcap prisons but in decap prisons that's available uh but it's it's i mean anything you can get and ha- how do you pay for them um bank drugs. transfer through uh phone so you get your someone from the outside to uh, send money to a certain account and that's the right. way it works or you trade it for possessions you currently have um how often drugs- could you speak to your family when you're in the um did you have a phone in the cell or not? No, no, no. I, I, there's, you have blue phones, which there's 
in a, in a wing of 250 people, you have free phones <laughs> yeah. and, and you have one hour to make a call. So, I mean, yeah, probably once every other day. Um, but you get uh, to shower every day, do you? Uh, not every day, no. Um, you can have lockdowns. You could have, yeah, you know, lockdowns happen a lot in Pentaville where you just don't leave yourself or the whole 24 hours. Um, my longest lockdown was 72 hours and I, I pity those in the coronavirus at the moment who are uh, most likely locked in their cell 24 seven, um, and have food to their door. Um, and yeah, it's, 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 um, it's hard to get showers, but you've got to play the game. If you play the game with the gubs and the prison wardens, you can get showers out when you're not meant to. <laughs> um, so sometimes I had a good rapport with a officer who let me out sometimes for a shower. And that's you just play the game. You and, play the game. And, and tell me about uh, the food in the prisons. Did you guys go into like a dining room or what? Uh, that, uh, that was my notion. I thought when I first came in that for dinner, you go and get your food from a canteen and you sit down and you eat your food. That's what I thought. The opposite is you let out for five minutes, you get your food, and you go straight back into your cell. And most cells don't have chairs or anything, so like, or desks or drawers. So like, what what do you do? You know, you're like trying to balance your plate and your lap and yeah. sit. And, you know, it's it's quite animalistic actually. Um, and yeah, yeah. So um, you just five minutes at your cell, and it's quite funny, really. Like in that five minutes. You always get, I mean, I say naughty kids because it's it's like, it's like a, sometimes it is like a bit like a school, bad boys yeah. and teachers. You know, these kids running around the wing. Um, I had this I had this guy um, who I was quite f- uh, friendly with, like good friends with, who um, uh, he, he, he drunk too much hooch, right? So you can make alcohol in prison. And he drunk too much hooch and got really drunk. And in that five minutes, he went onto the netting of the prison now, if you go on the netting, the prison officers are not allowed to get you. So you can stay on the netting for as long as you like. He was on the netting for, um, I think, like a good six hours. <laughs> and he just did not leave, demanding to get um, vape cartridges. And I remember looking through the crack and everyone was cheering, everyone's smashing yeah, the doors. And, um, and he, eventually he got the nationals in, uh, sorry, negotiators in, uh, outside special uh, special operations service to try and negotiate him to get well, off the netting onto the landing and um yeah it was i mean it, eventually he got off and then he was i don't really know i, I mean he, he got into his cell and yeah that was it i think he must have got a, i think he went to block the next day which is a underground it's a prison within a prison and that's like your punishment right, okay. um yeah yeah so if you're a smoker you're allowed to smoke in the, in your cell um, no, actually, that was abolished in 2016, I be- 2016, I believe. Um, so it's all vapes. Um, oh, okay. You're given a vape um, when you go in. And me, who I, I'm not a smoker, but I did vape within the, within the prison. Yeah. Um, I, initially, I saw it as a quite a good talking point. You know, like, you, you know, you, you sort of trade in cartridges. I am yeah. by with trade. I, I in the first few weeks, I didn't have access to much food, but you can get these chin, tin tuners. So I went off and I've got quite an entrepreneurial mindset as, as I as sort of born innately. And I would trade the vape cartridges to get some tins of tuna and that would nourish me for, for the next two weeks. What do you mean when you say you don't have access to food? Because surely you have three meals a day there, don't you? They're very limited. Now, in, in prison, you have something called canteen. And you can have like 10 to 12 pounds a week. 
And on Friday, you get a list, sorry, on Sunday, you get a list of your door. And it's just like toiletries or whey protein or just like a Twix bar, whatever. And you can tick those sort of things. And obviously it comes out of your prison account. And the next Friday, you will get that to your door. So a lot of people, they have tuna, they have couscous and they all that stuff and they cook it in their kettle. And that's what they, they eat because the food in prison is very limited and it's very shit, it's, it's slop, right? So people rely. Could you give us an example of just like a normal meal? Okay, so you, ha- you, know, you know you have sort of mints, right? Yeah. Um, it, it, I mean, the best way to describe it, there was more water than the mints. So you have right. the sort of solution of the mints, but just little tiny pieces of the mints sort of submerged in the solution. Um, and yeah, and then you have sort of sometimes this meat, processed meat, which would give you diarrhea. On Saturday, though, you would get a English breakfast sort of thing. And that was something to look forward to. And I'm right in saying that you were there during Christmas, right? And New Year's Eve. And New Year's. Yeah. So, so how was that? Uh, Christmas was just another day, nothing special. I mean, really, just just another day. Christmas um, dinner or not? No, none of that. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, I, the one thing I, I had which was special for me in Christmas was that I had a latte instead of a black coffee. I, I managed to get a, um, a, a sachet of latte from this uh, one because I did education there, it's IT, and they, they gave out a sachet of latte. So that was my Christmas treat just a, a latte and myself <laughs> but apart from that it was nothing yeah. absolutely nothing new year's eve was a bit more special though new year's eve um was actually i uh, was actually really quite quite something so people from 9 p.m to 3 a.m were smashing the doors so you've got the whole landing smashing your doors and the whole landing below you smashing their doors and the whole landing above you smashing their cell doors so the whole prison is shaking wow. and then um and then Come 12 a.m. Uh, on the new year, um, people are lighting uh, loo roll and chucking out the window. So there's this fire coming out of right. the prison prison cells. <laughs> and then a, 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 a anarchy group, um, I can't quite remember what group it is, uh, from the outside the prison. Uh, they do this every year for prisons, lit fireworks and shot them over D-wings. So suddenly fireworks are blowing up Whoa. right outside my cell. I mean, it could have burst my eardrum. Yeah. It was so powerful. And people are shouting and smashing. Um, and obviously behind the closed doors uh, with a lot of the inmates, a lot of drugs are being consumed. Yeah. And that, that, that and then you, the next day, people are, um, on New Year's Day, you can just see the, 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 the intoxication of just so much drugs um, being consumed within the prison. Did you learn how to make hooch when you were in there? Um, I know, Yeah, yeah, I, I know how to make it. Um, can you give it, us a in, quick, uh, like, 30-second course or not? Yeah, 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 a quick, a quick one. Um, so it involves um, sugar. It involves... Uh, bread or potatoes, normally bread, um, and oranges. Um, essentially, um, the sugar extract, uh, extracts the ethanol from the, the carbohydrate, which is the bread, and you basically allow the, the solution to ferment in a bottle, and you it, it obviously, I think carbon dioxide comes out of it, so you have to release the cap ever so often. I had a few individuals who blew their... Their, their, their bottles up uh, but you, you release the, the gas out of the, 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 the bottle and eventually you are left with sort of pure ethanol and then you use the pure ethanol and we strain the pure ethanol out sorry and once you've got the pure ethanol you will mix it with juice 
And then you have people just walking around the landing, just sipping hooch um, mm-hmm. on a day to day basis. So I've I've read before that you said that the prison was infested with rats and it was horrible, rusty, as you just say now. The food was awful. But, you know, obviously you actually talk um, with a smile on your face when you look back at the times, which is amazing. So so if you could, what was the sort of best thing about being in prison? Um, OK, Um a lot of people would sort of look at what I'm about to say with almost like a um, almost like like confusion because I am I am a thrill seeker. That's why I, I I love fear. I'm fascinated by fear. I'm inquisitive by fear, and I miss coming out myself in free flow. Now free flow is when the wings sort of open, and now gangs control the wings. So my wing was controlled by. Actually, I probably should. <laughs> I don't know if I can say, but it was controlled by a gang, right, yeah. in North London. And then the, an Albanian gang, I think, controlled C Wing. And then A Wing was controlled by this gang, and G Wing was controlled by this. And it, the, the gates of these wings open so people can get to education, a job, or a visit. And suddenly it's a fucking free fall. And you're walking through this wing. You got the Polish, you got the 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 London gangs, you got the North London gangs. Sorry, the North North gangs. You got the Asians, you got the Yardies, you got everyone. Right, so it's all like it's them. like Vice City. Yeah, yeah, all, real. Of, all of them up uh, up to God knows what. Drill music's blaring out their cells. Um, uh, sirens are going where a recent fight has, has kicked off. Guards are shouting, swearing is happening, people shouting, and people smashing their doors. And I'm walking from D wing, one end of the prison, to G wing, where I got my IT room, and that's what I miss. Walking through the wing and just seeing this chaos, people running about, people drugged up, people shouting, knives are out, people are fighting, and obviously yeah. I'm not not one to be involved with it. But the the adrenaline and the uncertainty of what the next corner is going to bring was extremely thrilling for me. Did you you ever feel under threat physically or not? During your time in prison? If I could describe one prison in one word, I would say paranoia. I don't care if you're the king of the wing or a newbie to prison. Every single individual in there, if they like or not, is filled with paranoia 24-7 of the day. Paranoia about your cellmate, paranoia about enemies, paranoia about being uh, kidnapped, stabbed, robbed, murdered, 24-7. So uh, although I was never scared, I was hyper-aware of my surroundings and always paranoid. Well, it amazes Uh, me that we have a justice system which can put someone who's achieved one of the most incredible feats in the last 30 years, not only in climbing, but in sports and endurance for this country. Uh, you know, you can punish a guy to put him in a cell with someone who's been there for attempted murder, a paranoid schizophrenic, and also somebody who's in there for stabbing. I mean, it's just beyond incredible to think that that's happening in 2020. Yeah, absolutely, mate. And um, I think the justice system and the prison system needs to take a complete U-turn um, I think the prison system needs to adopt the Norwegian way of um, way of justice, which is reform and rehabilitation as opposed to control. Listen, if you go into prison, a drug dealer, you will become a better drug dealer because you will learn from other drug dealers. If you come in a drug addict, well, you become more of a drug addict because that's where all the drug dealers and drugs are. If you come in an extremist, you will become more radical. And if you come in with mental health, you will become suicidal. It intensifies these characteristic traits. 
Norwegian system does the opposite. It reforms you, it rehabilitates you, it focuses on developing you as an individual. Therefore, the reoffending rates are, uh, are less, and um, the, the 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 revolving door scenario of the UK prison of most prison systems is completely abolished. You get people going into the prison and coming out and being a reformed working citizen, beneficial to the economy. And um, whereas in the UK prison, you get someone going into prison, committing crimes within the prison, committing crime out of the prison, going back in, in, out, in, out for yeah. the rest of their life, doing nothing for the economy, but wasting time and money. So when you eventually got out of prison, you were met by the incredible French climber, the, you know, nicknamed the French Spider-Man, uh, yes. or the real, the real life Spider-Man, whatever it is. Um, yeah. You were also met by your family. I mean, what an incredible moment that must have been. But how hard was it to readjust to society after your three months in, in, in prison? Um, I think the human mind and body are very good at adapting. Um, it didn't take long for me to adapt to real life. Yes, walking out, even though I was in there for three, I mean, 100 days is enough to create a habit and change one's mind. Um, and I remember coming out and holding a telephone and a, a phone. And I felt I felt like a, a, a fucking caveman. <laughs> Honestly, I was just this device. I couldn't quite work the buttons and yeah. the screen. It was quite, quite. I mean, for 100 days inside, that's, I mean, it can do that to you. Um, um I remember seeing a car come towards me and that was the fastest thing I've seen move um, in, in a while. Uh, actually, no, sorry. I went into um, a, a, a Anna Robert's Mustang. We did a victory lap of Pentonville and the speed of the car was the fastest thing I've experienced since yeah. in a hundred days. And that was quite, that was a significant, um, that was a significant um, uh, contrast. Uh, and then space was quite amazing because when you're in prison, right, you're in a cell, it's claustrophobic. You're in a wing, it's claustrophobic. Even when you're outside in the exercise yard, you've got netting above your head. It's all closed in above shoulders, claustrophobic, yeah. right? And so for suddenly be an open space was really quite amazing. So you're doing a lot of podcasts, a lot of interviews, a lot of TV. Uh, I know Channel 4 are doing a documentary about you, uh, which yes. is incredible. Um, you're also working on the book. But one question I had was, do you find it quite hard to find, and I'm not even sure if you're looking for them, but is it quite hard to get people like Red Bull or you know potential sponsors on board due to the nature of what you're doing, due to the fact that you could bring a bad name to their brand, possibly through jail time, or if, you know, God forbid, anything went wrong? um good question um uh i don't think so actually i think we live in an age where anything really goes uh, and it's it's i mean some brand a lot of brands have been interested and i've i've worked with a few brands um i haven't fully got a contract signed with anyone as of yet um, and it still will take time due to this whole coronavirus stuff uh but um people are willing to work with with it um they see me as a window to international exposure at a little cost. When I climbed the Shard, I was breaking news around the whole whole world um, in, in 45 minutes. You can't really get that from sticking your Red Bull logo on a on a no. Formula One car and racing around. So I'm an opportunity for a, a lot of brands just from the nature of what I do. Um, but yeah, it's it um, people uh, people do see. Um, Brands and production companies do see me as a commodity to a wider audience just because of the nature of what I do. Um, so on that, you know, I have a potential TV series planned. 
um, in uh, 2021 or maybe early this uh, late this year. But of course, this all depends on yeah, what corona. coronavirus has has to, has to offer. So you've achieved so much in your 20 years. I mean, it's just beyond incredible. And I think everyone that's into this is just going to be blown away by, you know, what you've done, what you've seen and what you've achieved in, in your 20 years so far. Um, what's, what, what does the future hold apart from, you know, the media opportunities, you know, in terms of climbing? Do you have another big climb you're thinking about or not yet? Yeah, well, you know, as I said before, I've always seen myself as more than just um, a climber, you know. I, I would probably, although it's hard to categorize what I do, I probably more say I'm an extreme athlete. I, I like to try different things. Now, what, one thing I really want to get into is base jumping. Now, base jumping is jumping from static objects with a parachute. B being buildings, A being antennas, S uh, being span. E being earth, span being bridges, E being earth being cliffs. Um, so I want to get into base jumping. Um, like I said before, I did a lot of ultra endurance um, challenges before. I want to swim the channel at some point. Boxing, I want to get back into that, but I want to take it to the next level and do bare knuckle boxing. But I mean, I've got a lot, list of these challenges which will somehow come into my life at some point. But in the, you know, I, I still want to climb. I still want to do uh, free solo activities on an urban basis. Uh, so yeah, I have projects planned, some of which I keep in quiet at the moment. But you know, we'll just have to see where it goes. Well, George, you know, you're one, well, you're not one in a million. You're essentially one in a billion. An incredible inspiration for everyone listening. And thank you so much for, you know, giving us time to tell your story. It's been fascinating to hear. And we wish you good luck for everything in the future. Thank you so much, mate. Cheers, I really George, appreciate mate. being on. Thank you very Thanks much. Can I just say, um, uh, if you want to follow any of my activity, you can find it at my Instagram, which is at Shard Climber. But thank you very much at for having me. Mate. Mate. George, you're an absolute legend, mate. Keep doing what you're doing. It's just amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Cheers, Thank George, you. Mate. Thank you so All much right. for that, George, man. Mate, that was brilliant. That was really awesome. enjoyed that.